All right, open up to Exodus chapter 16, uh, 19. Exodus chapter 19, I should, I should at least get that right. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 19. In, uh, in 1903, in, on December 17, a little place in uh, North Carolina called Kitty Hawk, the Wright brothers first uh, achieved what was called sustained ordered flight. They, 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 they flew in their little, little, it looked pretty makeshift, but it was the height of technology at the time. They flew in their little uh, airplane-looking thing a distance, an enormous distance for the day, 36 meters. There you go. Look at that. Sustained, controlled flight off the ground for a time of uh, 12 seconds, the longest controlled flight of passengers in the world at the time. All right. Pretty, pretty unimpressive for us today, but a world history-changing, impacting moment. Can you imagine, can you imagine graphing the change and the impact that that one moment on December 17 had on all of human history? Travel and tourism, for one. But, but medicine and emergency uh, 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 traveling for another, or, or, or science and innovation, the ability to get up into space, the, the ability to, to rapidly speed up uh, uh, international trade and traveling, connecting the world in a way that was undone ever before. Scientific leaps forward, and of course, warfare. Warfare that is now airborne and, and, and which paved the way for all things from the, from the shooting of, of soldiers with, with airborne weapons and the dropping of A-bombs onto cities. This would change the entire world in enormous ways, this one little day, December 17. Today we're coming to a portion of scripture that has changed not only the Jewish people, but all of people in all of history, in a way that entirely dwarfs the Wright brothers' achievement on December 17. We're coming to the revelation in chapter 19 and 20. The revelation from heaven of the one true holy God to mankind in a way that has never and had never been done up until this time in world history. About, about 1450 B.C., 14 and a half thousand years before, uh, 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 14 and a half hundred years rather, sorry. I'm a young earth guy. Uh, uh, before the, 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 the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, God revealed his law in a way that he had never done before. And it would affect people in the billions. It would just be God and one nation of, of a couple of million people in a desert in the Sinai wilderness. And yet this would go on. These Ten Commandments given by God would go on to impact the lives of billions as they inform countless nations' constitutions and laws and founding documents. They would be the guiding principle for multiple major world religions. This moment, right here, sociologically, one of the biggest moments in all of human history. And yet it is much deeper than that. Because this is not just a sociological study about things that happened in history. It's a theological study about what God is doing in history and who God is to his core. Today, the people of God, made in his image and then saved through uh, out of Egypt, will for the first time see in detail 
standards of righteousness, not just the, that, is, that is naturally in their own hearts, but put out into stone before them. That's what they're going to hear in this scene that we see over the next month or so. And it's even deeper than that. This revelation would in fact be the, the foundation stone, the, the plumb line, the, the testing uh, uh, line for all of God's future revelation to mankind. If anything, if any prophet, regardless of his magical gifts and abilities, if he says anything that goes against the words of Moses from God himself here today, he was to be considered false, cast out and stoned to death. This is an enormously impactful, determining moment in the history of not just God's people, but all people, the entire cosmos. Let's now read Exodus chapter 19. We will be reading the entire thing together. <clears throat> On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, that is three months, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on, wing, on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders to the people and set of the people and set them all uh, uh, and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. God was sealing Moses as his mouthpiece. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. That would have been by some kind of sacrifice. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the, de for the third day. Do not go near a woman. He's commanding the men to refrain from a distracting worldly pleasure of sexual intimacy. He says, let's stay focused. You are commanded to be, to be uh, uh, one-minded here on the, uh, the arrival of the Lord. Verse 16. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go back down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, But the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. In other words, he's saying, I don't need to go back down and warn them again. We already warned them. Verse 24, And the Lord said to him, Go down. And come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. May God bless his own holy, inerrant, powerful word in our midst this morning. Exodus 19 Before we get to Exodus 20, which is the giving of the Ten Commandments, this scene that is set for us today is a fulfillment of Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. When God had appeared to Moses in the burning bush on this same mountain, he told to him, he told to Moses, who was doubting, he said to Moses, I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This, was the, this is a fulfillment of God's own prophecy. I told you, Moses, I said I would bring you here, and he's not just appearing in a flaming bush this time, but a flaming, billowing smoke mountain. This, this is of such high significance. Deuteronomy 4 picks this up and says in verse 32 and 3, Ask from one end of heaven to another whether such a great thing has ever happened or was ever even heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? That is the two double-pronged surprise and wondrous mystery that we see here today as we unfold and we study this scene is that God is so immensely holy and that people were allowed to behold it and live. God's holiness is on display here today, and we will see it in in three main ways. (coughs) We're going to see the personal nature of God's law, the transcendent nature of God and his law, and the condescending nature of God and his law. At, At this point, the people are told, you know, Moses goes up and he hears God, and he comes back down and he tells the people, I'll make a sacrifice, and then for three days we wash ourselves and consecrate ourselves, so that on the third day... Isn't the third day such a marvelous theme that goes through Scripture? On the third day, you will meet the Lord. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. A a much better occasion than Sinai, I tell you that. But on the third day, God was going to meet with them, and they had to spend that time fasting and preparing themselves. And we're going to do something somewhat similar. Not making any husband-wife rules at the moment. What I'm saying is that over the next 
three weeks, we will study different portions of Exodus 19 so that our minds are consecrated, so that we are ready to then embark on the journey that is Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Look first at verse 1 through 6 of chapter 19. Here we see that God's law, God's law given to mankind is a personal revelation of God from God. The revelation of God's law on the stone tablets to mankind is nothing less than a revelation of himself coming from him. Law is often a dirty word. We, we, it's a mean word. If you care about God's law, you're probably something of a Pharisee or, or legalistic. It's, it's almost akin to an insult in our evangelical antinomian kind of day. Uh, law or law people or you read the law and the Old Testament, etc., etc. It's somewhat of a dirty word that even as we say it, you need the preacher to quickly run to grace. Don't, don't, don't talk about law too long before you remind us that it's actually okay. God doesn't mind too much. That's a, that's a bygone era. Law, when you think of God's law, not mis, mis, misrepresentations of God's law, not misconstrued applications of God's law with bad hermeneutics and poor contextual arguments, I mean God's actual law. When you read God's law, you must think of it as a gift from God, a revelation or a peeking into his very own personality, his very own nature. Law is God revealing himself to us, his perfect, righteous heart to his people. Every command in the Ten Commandments, especially that we look at, every single command will reveal something about the God who is giving it. He's, he's the only God, so we don't worship others. He's, he's an invisible, un, immaterial God, and therefore we don't make material things to worship him. He's a holy God, so we must be holy regarding his name and law. He, he's, a, he's a faithful God, and so we must not commit adultery. He is, all of these things reveal something about who God is. The law images him. This is why to hate God's law is to hate God. You cannot hate God's law. You cannot feel that it is unfair, overly harsh, very strict, not for you, and at the same time claim to love the one true God. You love a God. It's called an idol, and we'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. You may love a kind of God that you've imagined that is totally divorced from and, and not pictured by the Ten Commandments. And, and words like holy and transcendent and just, just, just don't really come to mind. You cannot hate God's law without hating him. First John tells us that sin is lawlessness. But if the law, literally sin is anti-law. But if the law is a picture of God, then sin is godlessness. It is ungodliness, or rather, it is anti-godness. To break and to disobey and to speak little of and to hate God's law is, in fact, to hate God. So Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Because to love God's law is to love something about God. It's a personal revelation of him. It is not God. It is a gift from God. It is a taste of God. It is a sign and a revelation of himself. And we, we see that this, is a, this scene, as scary as it may be, it is a positive, gracious, 
relational giving of the law. God wants his people to see that this law is a gift to them. It's a gracious condescension by which he, he, he gifted them by hearing their prayers while they were in slavery. He came down and he graciously saved them from the Egyptians through the plagues and saved them across the Red Sea. And he graciously gave them manna and water and quail in the wilderness. And now this is no different. This is now another gracious gift of God by which he reveals to them his law as an act of love. Verse 4 through 6 especially shows us this. As God said, go and tell the Israelites this. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Therefore now, you, are my, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. He conditions it on their obeying his law. He has carried them like wings, not to a mountain of mere judgment so that he can crush them, but so that he can give them the good gift of his law. So, so the law is, we need to, this is the first important thing about the law. Before we know what it says and how it applies, the first thing is that the law is good. The law is godly. The law is beautiful. We love the law because we love God. It is a picture of God's own heart, and to break it is to break God's heart. The law is good. But the law, and in fact the whole scene, the scene that we see today of the giving of the law, shows us things and reveals two very important things about God. So while we've said it is in the context of a personal relationship, it's an act of love for God to give his law because his law is good, the whole scene today that we see in Exodus 19 shows us two very important things about God and also about his law. And the first thing is the transcendence of the law. Transcendence. This word, is a, a, it's a, it has uh, applications and uses in different uh, 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 disciplines of thought. Transcendence in theology, however, speaks of the absolute distinctiveness between God and all creation. It means that God is infinitely superior to us in every way. Not just better, but above. In other words, he's not the, the best in the whole category of us. It's that he, he's not even in our category. He is distinct from us. He's not just old, he's eternal outside of time. He's not just powerful, he's the very essence of power and act itself. God has transcendence because he is above us in every single conceivable way. And Exodus chapter 19, the scene that we're looking at today, it pictures this in a very visible way through the height of God and the lowliness of the people. They are down on the ground. He is up in heaven. He has to come down to them. They have to go up to him. God has to appear to them by, 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 by descending because he is showing to them his distinctiveness and his superiority in that he is infinitely above them. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, uh, paragraph 1, speaks of the very nature of God and it uses these words. I couldn't put it into better words, so I stole from them. Here's what it says. God is infinite in being and perfection whose essence cannot be comprehended fully by anyone except himself. He is a most pure spirit, invisible, without a body, without parts, and without passions, 
who alone has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. What an amazingly poetic, theologically helpful paragraph. And yet even saying that feels like it has still fallen infinitely short of what it should have said. God is infinitely above us in every single way. He is unlike any other imagination of a God. And that is what he is showing us here in his law and also in the scene of the giving of the law. He is showing his distinctiveness and his transcendence to every generation that ever reads this book. So consider these. Look at verse 3. These are things that we see in the scenes which show us the transcendence of God. Moses had to go up to God in verse 3. In verse 11, God says that he will come down. He he must come down. So many people will tell you today, even in so-called churches, to find God, to find the divine, you need to look within. Moses wasn't sent to sit on his his behind around around a little pond and look at his reflection to find God. He had to go out of himself. We are anti-God and ungodly and ungodlike in all of our natures. If we will know God, we must look without ourselves. Don't let anyone ever tell you the hope and the solution is within you. You're the problem in every way. We must go outside of ourselves to find the one true living God. God has to reveal himself to us, and so Moses has to go up. God is distinct from us. People say today, we can find out about God by introspection, by contemplation, by meditation, and by experience. No. God is distinct from us. God is above us, beyond us. You're not a part of him. You're created by him. As a the great theologian, John Lennon, I have, to, I have to just put brackets around that because some people miss my jokes when I say that. Somebody went and looked up Teddy Roosevelt as a great theologian one time when I made a joke. John Lennon was a hippie, and where he is right now, it's very hot. Not a Christian, not a theologian at all. Here's what he said. He, he imbibed the natural man's hope when he said this. Imagine there's no heaven. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people just living for today. John has to imagine that. Everyone like him has to imagine that because that's not reality. It's not the world they live in. Above us is a majestic, imposing God. There is not just only sky, nor does mankind live any better and more more hope today, lovingly, morally filled lives because they imagine that. No, we have to look out to see God and he makes himself known. Look at the spectacles of the scene as well. There is, in verse 9 and verse 16, we're told there is Thick cloud. Don't think of the, of the fog or the mist that comes up in the mountains on the early morning. No, think billowing smoke coming off of an enormous oil fire. Thick cloud. Mount Sinai, verse 18 says, was wrapped in smoke. We're told that the whole mountain trembled greatly in verse 19. All of these things are showing us There's a purpose to this, the the thick cloud, which God also utilizes in the temple in days to come. God utilizes thick cloud 
in the way that a celebrity uses tinting on a limousine. On one hand, it's saying there is beauty, there is glory to be seen here by not allowing you to see it. Do you see? The cloud, the the thick smoke is not the beauty. It's the tinting that doesn't allow you to see through it and yet we know on the other side there is beauty. It's, it's like in the, in the uh, ancient Near East, there would be a veil over a wife's face that would block her entirely. And it was not to say that there's no beauty behind there, though it's a good trick if you, if you needed that help. It's not to say there's no beauty behind the wife's veil. It's to say there is such beauty that it is rightly concealed. So it is with this thick smoke that God wraps around himself as he appears. It is in one hand not the glory of God, And it's, on the other hand, concealing the glory of God. There is something behind this that speaks of glory. It says in verse 18, The Lord descended on the mountain in fire. I love that it doesn't say he sent fire around him. It says he has descended in the fire. Everything else is around God. The fire in this scene is the picture of God. This is just like Exodus 3 when God met Moses. He is in the fire. The fire is the embodiment of him. Fire was showing the purity, the consuming nature of God and his absolute severity. There's also lightning, as if this isn't enough. There's also striking lightnings going on all around the mountaintop of Mount Sinai. And then there's the noises. Verse 13 tells us that there is a trumpet sounding a long blast wasn't being played by humans. That was the angelic host announcing, like an old announcing party used to in the ancient world, even some places of today, as the king came onto the scene, as the king entered a town, as the king came up to his throne, the assembly would blast their trumpets. It's a royal, regal announcement of the arrival of a sovereign. And the angels in heaven are warning earth's inhabitants that Yahweh is stepping down. There is also the quaking, the whole mountain trembling greatly. It is convulsed by an earthquake. And then there is the warnings that God says, as if the imagery wasn't enough to make them not want to walk up. He made it very clear and said, if you dare get curious and try and climb up the mountain to peek in, if you dare even touch the mountain, you are commanded to be put to death by the security of the elders who are standing in front of you as a barricade. In fact, even the elders who are in this instance called priests in their representative role, Moses is told to go back down and warn the priests as well, especially, don't break through. You're not, uh, you're not a, a privilege to such a degree that God's wrath will not burn you today. And then uh, they had to kill the people who touched the mountain in a way that doesn't make them unclean by touching the person. So they couldn't hang them, they couldn't stab them, they couldn't kill them like that. They had to stand far off and shoot them with arrows or clobber them with thrown stones. And they weren't allowed to bury them. This is a big sign of God's distinction, his transcendence. You cannot come near to this God. This is the the danger of Yahweh. How many churches today will gather and try and convince you with everything they can. God is your best pal. They will almost hold the unbeliever by the hand and promise them there's nothing to be worried about with God. 
I know your grandpa. I know Billy Graham. I know these other, these other Pharisees have told you that God is a hellfire brimstone God. But no, God is your friend, your pal. He's safe. God is showing us in this arrival in Exodus 19 that the least safe space imaginable is in God's presence. He is unsafe. He is dangerous. And this isn't just Old Testament stuff. Hebrews 10 says, our God is a consuming fire. He's picking up on the Sinai language. He is in the fire. He is the consuming fire. Fire falls short of how consuming and hot and severe God really is. Hebrews 13 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The law is severe and the law is holy, and the law is above what we can imagine, and the law is absolutely perfect, like silver that has been purified seven times, because it is the picture of the God who is transcendent, who is infinitely holy, who is above us, and yet who reveals himself to us. Those who break God's law, therefore, are running up to this Mount Sinai and attempting to graffiti it. Those who hate God's law are those standing around Mount Sinai and spitting on it and insulting this severe God. They hate God, despise his law, and then they are judged, eventually, all of us, judged by this God. But this scene also shows us not just the transcendence of the personal God, but also the condescension of God. God is above us, he is beyond us, he is superior to us. He is incomprehensible. In other words, no one can ever wrap their mind around God and say that they fully understood him. We can never exhaust a knowledge of all of his attributes and, and works and words. Never. None of us can. And yet the word of condescension that the Bible uses, that, that theologians use, is the idea that God, being high above us, yet kneels down to us, speaks in words in human linguistic words, so that we can understand him and know him. God, being infinitely above us, has yet graciously condescends down to us. So verse 9 says, I am coming to you. Verse 11 says, On the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 18 says, The Lord had descended. Verse 20 says, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. He is infinitely holy, but he invites them to be consecrated so that they can be holy and then meet him. Not presumptuously run up to him, but they can come and behold the display of his holiness. He is transcendent, yet condescending. He has to be both of these things or he is not worth knowing. If he is a transcendent God, like the deists would have us believe, and, and he is so far above us, unknowable by us, then not only does it not matter if we don't know him, but why would we want to? He, he's so far above, he's incomprehensible. If he doesn't want to know me, then why would we want to know him? On the other hand, if God is so far condescending in his, in his essential nature that we are all a part of God, then guess what? You don't need to get to know God, you are him. Or, if God is outside of us and yet so low and so approachable, I would submit to you that he's not very worth knowing. 
because he's bound by the same limitations of us, like the, like the Greek and Roman and so many other mythological gods that are really just super humans, but with limitations and lusts and passions and frustrations, not worth knowing, not worth worshipping. But because the one true God is infinitely transcendent and the source of all being, yet he has condescended to us graciously, then we can say he is worth knowing, but he is able to be known more so. He is worth knowing, and he has made himself able to be known. He is the one God who, as Deuteronomy 4 says, speaks out of the fire to us and does not cause us to immediately perish. This is the grace of God. Therefore, when we look at Exodus 20, as the scene unfolds and we go into the actual reception of the law, it is important for us to realize that this is not a philosophy of religion, but it is revelation. It is not primarily, hear this carefully, true religion is not primarily theology. It is primarily revelation which allows theology. Mankind's philosophy and religion is just theology. There's no revelation of God. We have to think about God. We call it theology. Theological studies and departments at all kind of secular universities and religious studies and anthropological studies. We're just studying humankind as they have thought about God. That is not what Christianity is. Christianity, the one true worship of the one true God is actually that God reveals to us and then says, no one study my word. I saw this, this discussion and this debate between a Christian pastor and a Jewish philosophy sort of influencer. And he was saying, what do you think is the main philosophical distinction? We, we share so much in the philosophies of Christianity and Judaism. What do you think is one of the key marker philosophical distinctions of Christianity? And he said, well, first of all, it's not a philosophy. It's revelation. God spoke, we listen. We didn't try and think up towards him. He came down towards us. So that in the Ten Commandments, we do not have a guru or a spiritual leader's ideas about God. We have the words of God written in stone by the finger of God and given to the mouthpiece of God, Moses. You can imagine, you can imagine all kinds of gods that sound really great to you. You can imagine a God that isn't holy like this. You can, you can imagine all kinds of gods that are more friendly, that are more, more gentle, that, that really love you as much as you love you. But, but the more that mankind thinks about God themselves, this is why we need revelation, the more that mankind thinks about God themselves, the more the gods they think about look like themselves. Because we make God in our own image. I can't remember who it was, a Christian philosopher, said that God made us in his image and then we returned the favor. We shape God, we carve off the bits we don't like. But these laws that are set in stone will be a reminder to us that God is unchanging and immutable, just like his, his laws are unchanging and immutable. God's nature is set in stone, and if we try and imagine God's, we will get it wrong every time, and they will lead us to hell. Rather, that God's truth remains. He is the one true God that we come to and receive his revelation from him. He's transcendent. Whether, we can, whether we're comfortable with it or not, he is holy. He is righteous. He is a judging God. He is a just God. But because he is the one and only true God, he is the best God to know. 
Whatever other things get you uncomfortable about him, know that it is good that you are made uncomfortable because the one thing that matters is truth. The one thing that matters is that this is the true God. Don't ask in Exodus 19 whether this, how this makes you feel. I'm not th- doing therapy today. I don't care how unsafe you feel. Ask, is this the word of God? And it is. As we study the law, therefore, we have to start with all of this understanding. We're not just studying history. We're not just studying a story from the Bible. We are studying the the, the nature of a holy God himself. And I need to say this, that in the New Testament times, this is still our God. This is still our God. God the Son who revealed himself on Mount Sinai today, Hebrews says, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. God is unchanging. This is still our God in Exodus chapter 19. The, the, the form of our religion, the, 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 the sacraments and the dress code and, the, and the, the language and the words and the priesthood, it's all different. We are in a covenant that has an entirely different form that is multinational and global and all the rest, and yet we do not have a different God. We didn't graduate beyond the wrathful. We didn't, we didn't move on from this Old Testament God to a New Testament God of grace. When the Bible says that we are not under law, but now we are under grace, it does not mean that we have changed gods. It means that we have changed how we are enabled to approach God. Two very different things. We talk about that next week. When we study God here, we must understand that our Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship in song and in giving and in fellowship and in the preaching of the gospel, he is still a transcendent, condescending, revealing God who shows us his nature in his Lord. Jesus loved the law. Jesus lived the law perfectly. Jesus pointed us to the law and never said, you know what, it's wrong, let's get rid of it. He said, you're reading it wrong. Look at it clearer. It's more imposing on you than you realize. Jesus loved the law of God. He fulfilled the law of God. He honored the law of God. But what is much more important is that he gives us a way to approach this God. Listen to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. Because of God's oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Verse 26. This this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What has God demanded if we are to approach him, much like in this scene of Exodus at Mount Sinai? God God has demanded that anybody who has sinned, that anybody who is anything other than perfectly innocent, anybody that has ever broken his law, anyone that has ever committed idolatry or adultery, if you've ever spoken an untrue word or thought, if you've ever coveted something belonging to somebody else, if you've ever acted violently in your words or hands, you stand there and stay far off. The only one who can come near is God's appointed mediator. On Mount Sinai, that was Moses. But in the better covenant, we're told in Hebrews 7, with a better mediator, we have somebody who can actually tick the boxes. Pure, undefiled. Jesus never had to go through a consecration process. Isn't that amazing? 
We serve a priest that never had to wash. We serve a priest that never had to be consecrated because he's not just consecrated, he is consecration itself. He never had to be sanctified, he is sanctity itself. He never had to be made holy, he is holy, 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 holiness itself. Jesus is perfect, pure, undefiled, never lying, pure hands, never shedding of innocent blood, never desiring that which is not his own. And he was allowed to ascend the mountain of God in our place. God demanded a perfect sacrifice for human sin. And in his death, Jesus gave it. In his death on the cross, Jesus was not trying to undo the Old Testament. He was not trying to rub away all of the the wrath in the Old Testament. He was fulfilling the Old Testament. He was saying that picture of God on Mount Sinai, it's perfect. It's good. It's true. You really will be consumed if you draw near to this kind of God without a protector. But I have absorbed the wrath of that God in myself. I have taken the punishment against each of you and and taken it into my own self because I carried your sin on my shoulders up that mountain and was struck. Jesus Christ affirms, loves, fulfills all of the Old Testament pictures of God's wrath and he makes a perfect sacrifice for sin. He sheds his blood Just like Moses had to make a sacrifice to consecrate the people, Jesus shed his blood to cleanse anybody that comes to God through his name. This is part of the glorious things of the gospel, is that there is no pilgrimage necessary. There's no such thing as a holy mountain of God anymore. Wherever the word of God is preached, there the people are sanctified to draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever you are as a sinner... You are able in this moment to approach God as long as you do it through the, through the representation, through the mediation, or through the, through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not a sinner, I beg your pardon, you're not here. If you're not, if you're not a sinner, you're not here. If you're not a Christian, and even if you are, I want you to imagine Mount Sinai. And there's not a crowd of millions, it's just you. And there's this mountain, jaggedy rock, and, and you start walking up it. This will happen one day in a much more fearful way. This is just a mind experiment. But imagine. Imagine you start walking up that hill, and you can't see your hand in front of your face because of the thickness of the billowing smoke. And there is fire all around you, glowing the smoke orange, a deep red. Bright flashes of lightning are striking the ground all around you. And there's this otherworldly, deafening trumpet that is blasting, like the the blast of a thousand brass instruments. And as you're going, the ground is shaking and rocking you side to side as the dust is falling and rocks are tumbling beside you. And as you keep on ascending, you hear a deafening, explosive voice of thunder. And it is God's voice. And before God... He lists all of your sins. And he asks you if you have a a perfection to offer him. If you have a righteous life. If you have a substitute who has willingly taken your punishment. Or are you volunteering this day to take your punishment yourself. That is the scene 
infinitely scarier than what we've just imagined then. That is the scene of every person on judgment day before God. But this time that God will not embody himself in flame, we are told that Jesus was risen from the dead to be the judge of all the living and the dead. So that we will face Jesus and he will ask you, do you have sin? And if there is even a drop of your sin that is unatoned for, that is unaccounted for by way of payment, you will spend an eternity in a place that makes the shaking Mount Sinai look like play school. Hell, God's unending, unmitigated, uh, uh, unheld back release of wrath down upon every sinner who dared to blaspheme him and sin against him. This is the question. When you meet this God, who is so transcendent, yet has condescended, when you meet this God, will you stand before him broad-faced, open-chested, as the Bible says, purely naked without any cover before him, all of your sins laid out in a book, will you meet him without a shield? Or will you meet him in the next to, under the protection of, behind the shield of, because of the blood of Jesus Christ who represented you and went there for you? Will you meet God on judgment day in the person and work of Jesus Christ as saviour or as a sinner before his wrath? That is the question. That is the most important question about you. That is the most pressing question that we should pull from Exodus chapter 19. Will I meet this God on my own? Or will I approach him through his appointed mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you do, you have immediate perfection granted to your account. You have immediate access. It's as if the the red carpet rolls up the entire mountain and you are welcomed into the presence of God. You are put put, put with a badge as a family member of God. You are given his holy transcendent spirit within you so that you might be his speakers of grace, so that you might be a servant in his temple, the church. This is the blessing and the grace of God to any who have the audacity to approach him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray it's you. I pray it's every single one of you who are still unbelievers. Come to God through Jesus Christ today and receive this wondrous mystery. The transcendent God made known in Jesus, welcoming us into his holiness because of the death of our great and undefiled high priest. Jesus has obtained a ministry that is better and much more excellent than the old. And because the covenant that he mediates is better, because it's enacted on better promises, Hebrews 8. There's better promises in the gospel than there are at Mount Sinai. Come and know God, not just through his law. Meet him through Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we cannot, we can never picture this scene accurately. We can never picture you in your glory and your transcendent majesty and your power. We can never do it in a way that, 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 that is justifiable, in a way that fulfills the, the, the holiness that you were trying to communicate that day. But Lord God, as Peter the Apostle says, we have something much more sure, much more grounding, much more assuring than simply an experience of glory on a mountain. We have the word of God in Scripture preserved for us, which assures us with the voice and the Spirit of God through its pages to us that if we trust in Christ, then we need not fear a single sin is still in our account. 
that if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again, who is now exalted above the heavens and, and reigning from heaven, if we trust in him with our sin, then we will be, we will be cleansed and washed freely. We will, be, we will be pure in your sight and we will be accepted as those you love. Father God, we thank you for the law. We thank you that it shows us your transcendence and your holiness. And I ask that, that we Christians would not be, would not be lighthearted, would not be frivolous, would not be, would not be a, a joking about your holiness and, and the kind of God we serve, but that we would be joy-filled. Not because we're always chipper and always feeling on top of the world, but because in the solemnity of faith, we rest our souls upon your word, which assures us that those who rest on Jesus will never be put to shame. Father God, I pray that you would sanctify your name in our minds, that you would save those who are still far off and unbelieving. You would give them grace in the Lord Jesus Christ to believe. And Lord God, that you would, you would utilize us as your people to be those who preach and proclaim your good news of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the greater revelation than Mount Sinai the great revelation of your mercy and grace through his life, death, and resurrection. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.